to Sam Watches Star Trek, the ripoff podcast within a podcast that is now a spinoff podcast where I ask Sam questions about the episodes of Star Trek that we watched this week. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. I am for you, Tessa. Creepy. We are talking about the Mark of Gideon and that which survives. Let's just dive right into The Mark of Gideon, which is the 16th episode of the third season of TOS. It was written by George F. Slavin and Stanley Adams. Fun fact, Stanley Adams portrayed Cyrano Jones in The Trouble with Tribbles. So, more evidence of the incestuous nature of Star Trek acting and writing. Stop trying to make the thruple happen. You're trying to normalize words like incestuous... I know what you're doing. Don't don't sell your Star Trek agenda on me. Okay, first of all, polyamory is not the same as incest. This is this is rapidly becoming a conversation that I don't want to have. This episode was directed by Judd Taylor and it was first broadcast on January 17th, 1969. In the midst of some intense negotiations with the mysterious and isolationist planet Gideon, Kirk beams down to talk to the ruling council only to find himself on an apparently abandoned Enterprise. As he wanders around trying to figure out what happened to his crew, he finds that the only person on the ship is Odana, a woman who finds herself as bewildered to be there as Kirk is. Meanwhile, the very alive Spock, Scotty, and McCoy try to figure out where their captain disappeared to, while the Gideonites refuse to cooperate, risking a diplomatic incident. Sam, what were your first thoughts about this episode? Okay, first, I... I, I I know those two aren't the same thing. What I was saying was, you are definitely trying to push this thing about Star Trek, where which is a series where they bone all the time. And, and listen, that's not what Star Trek is about. Stars and trekking, and they don't bone. That's what the internet says, right? That's the, that's the bit on the... Okay, so, and, and that leads me to my second point. O'Donna. I mean, come on, man. Like... Speaking of boning, you can't tell me that Kirk's like, oh no, I'm the last man on earth and there's only one woman. I want to say it's Bill Haley and the Comets that had the song about the nuclear apocalypse and how he's the only one left and there's a bunch of girls. Like this is a nuclear dream, right? It's it's something that was popularized, the last man on earth. It's certainly not. I mean, you go back to Robinson Crusoe, you can go back. Very Adam, he was the first, not the last, but it's kind of the same thing. But this last man on Earth thing is popularized from the Atomic Age. So this is actually something that is coming from history. Again, though, stop trying to sell your agenda on me. It's been a while since we've seen like a real Kirk takes a hot alien lady into his arms and kisses her type of romance. What did you think about their relationship? I feel like that's because we're skipping most of the episodes where that happens, right? Kirk seems very upset by the fact that he's suddenly on a version of the Enterprise without other people. She seems pretty happy to be on a version of the Enterprise without any people. Knowing that this episode is about overpopulation, that's fine. But again, this this is a very atomic dream slash nightmare, right? Kirk For Kirk, it's a nightmare, although... Oddly, you'd think it would be his dream, but he's without his boys, so 
But it's but this is a weird inversion, right? Like the whole thing is like the last man on earth. He's like, oh boy, girls, and the girls are like, oh no, protect me, right? That is the patriarchal version of this fantasy. This is in, inverted, right? Kirk is like trying to figure out and get out of it, and she's like, no, this is awesome, this is great. And of course, we soon learn that that's an overpopulation thing. I guess the thing about this episode that stands out, because I'm not as interested in the Odana storyline. I'm just not. I think the overpopulation storyline is much more interesting. But what I would say is it is an interesting inversion. Kirk likes to be in control of any romantic sexual situation. He is not the one who is comfortable with what's happening. Thus, he is not in control. Thus, of course, he is unhappy. So we're going to talk about the overpopulation thing here in a minute. But before it was revealed, like the twist happened in this episode and you figured out exactly what was going on. What did you think about those super creepy faces that just would suddenly appear on the screen before you before you realize that they're actually a bunch of people looking in to this replica of the Enterprise? I have no idea. No idea, because at that point we haven't established it's a replica. We know that. Like, uh, th- it's pretty clear that this isn't a time shift or a parallel universe. We have done those things. This is not that. But they haven't made it clear yet about whether or not this replica is in space or not. I mean, the next episode we watch, the Enterprise gets like catapulted light years away. So there's no reason to believe that this thing is necessarily on the ground within the planet, which is shielded. I remember this now. But there's no, there's no rule saying it had to be there. So they are very disconcerting. They are a projection, right? It, it's so, sure, fine. Those are other people walking around on the planet. You might want to have sold that a little bit better because it looks like a projection, which made me think they were still in space somewhere. That's what I thought. Since you pointed out that this is Kirk's nightmare, it actually does sort of add to that feeling. Like he's on the ship alone, except for Odana, and they're having like this romance that you pointed out is kind of out of his control. And then suddenly there are these people watching them. That That is a very, for me, that would be nightmare fuel, right? I guess for some people it would be their kink. You know, it, it, it just seems like, oh yeah, you, you're, you're in this maze and you're being watched. Like there's, there's sort of that claustrophobic feeling, which is hilarious considering what we find out, which is Odana comes from the planet Gideon and Gideon, which is isolationist and mysterious, the, the Starfleet does not know very much about it. It turns out that they are severely overpopulated. Like there isn't a square foot of the planet that isn't being occupied by a person. They are trying to figure out a way to curb this problem. And so they come up with the brilliant idea of tricking Kirk to come down into this maze-like enterprise so that way he can infect Odana, who is like the daughter of the ruling council member. It's not very well explained. But he can infect her with a disease that he almost died from. So he has like the antibodies, but she can still catch it. And so he gives her this illness. So we got what we have here is a very 60s and 70s sci-fi preoccupation with overpopulation. How are we going to stop overpopulation on Earth? We also have somewhat of a pandemic storyline, which I was not, I didn't remember that aspect of it. So that was really interesting to run up against that again. Okay, so there are a couple of things, and I won't spend much time on either one. The first is, 
they are relying too much on Kirk stranded hot girl. You can tell this is the end of the third season. You can tell, to me, it's very lazy writing. Like, it doesn't matter that she's a hot girl. That is not integral to the plot in some ways that it was before. I roll. The other thing is the the pandemic storyline. I mean, they're clearly, I mean, this is, how do you take care of overpopulation? Well, I think we know the answer to that now in a pandemic situation. You just let people be stupid. I won't say anything more about that. Wouldn't have been a problem. Well, and I love that Kirk try, like gives them several different alternatives to allowing Odana to die and her infecting other people. Like he says, "Well, we could get we have we have sterilization techniques. We have birth control techniques. Like the Federation is a progressive situation apparently. Like we can figure out how to help you control your birth rate." And their response is some weird like pro-life like sort of argument and i i was curious what you thought about that so you mentioned earlier that this is an isolationist society and of course once you hit the atomic age right the first part of the 20th century is america repeatedly trying to be isolationist and failing so the atomic age and the cold war is capitulation to globalization globalization really is us versus them for a while. We don't get into this more modern World Trade Organization idea until about the turn of the century. But this is something that that people are going to be pretty familiar with still at this point in time, this idea of isolationism. It's the idea that our ideas are best and how that can conflict with the idea of self-protection, of, of trying to maintain life. Which again, is something we can barely clearly see it right now. Sometimes other people's ideas are the best thing for you. And so this is a situation, this is what isolationism is. It either works because, and this is the idea of pocket utopias, right? Like isolationism can pay off. That's why we as a country, wanted to be isolationist throughout the first half of the 20th century, is that is the way to utopia, we have been told. But now we're seeing that we cannot. Globalization is, at its best, a sharing of ideas, where whoever has the best idea has the best idea. It's not about nationalism, it's not about pride, and this planet is dying. These people you know, the projections, they're just like milling about, right? And, and so the whole idea here is that ha- they have no personality. They have no lives. They have no sustainability. There's nothing there because they foolishly insisted on isolationism, on the fact that their ideas are best. And so it's, of course, ironic that their ideas are pro-life because they're all going to die from them. I can't say this enough. This is what this utopian idea of Star Trek is trying to put forward. Utopianism isn't, we make America utopia and the rest of you suckers can die. It's not, let's all be idiots and we'll all die together. It's best idea for everybody. And we can all contribute to that. That's why I think this is far more interesting than the O'Donnell thing, because it's actually the thing. Right. And I mean, we've heard these types of arguments before. And I, first of all, I profoundly disagree with them because it's like, well, 
okay, so you care about unborn life more than you care about the lives of people who are already here and who already have a terrible quality of life, right? Like, don't you care about those people? Like, so there's there's that. There is also this other thing that I thought about that doesn't come up in the episode, but it kind of still is there in the background. Why don't they leave the planet? Like, why don't they colonize? Why don't they send people off? You know, because that seems to be what Star Trek is saying that humans have to do. We have to leave this planet. We have to spread across the galaxy, right? We have to find places where we can grow and thrive and and find, you know, use technology to build ourselves utopia. So the the answer to that is the fact that the planet has a cloaking system. If they leave the planet, other people can see what they're doing. And that is, of course, what we're trying to do in the 60s. That was, we start talking about encroachment. That's what the Cuban Missile Crisis was. Bring your things across this line and we will nuke you back to the Stone Age. We get mutually assured destruction from that. But we also get this, this idea of a dome, right? Stay out of our airspace. You know, when, once the space race happens and we have satellites, which is well underway at this point, you, you become this surveillance state, but not a surveillance of yourself, a surveillance of other people. And so that's where you have, you know, all of the spy craft and all the stuff of the, the Cold War. So this is once again saying that isolationism says, not only do we're we going to keep to ourselves, we are actively going to try to keep you out, which again, won't work. It won't work. This is the kind of thing you get yourself into. It's a very twisted idea of utopia. It, it's very difficult to talk about this right now, two years into a pandemic. But, but as you know, it was very difficult at the beginning of a pandemic for somebody who actually studies and writes about utopian philosophy, the real kind, not this fake pocket utopia kind, to see that everything that could lead us to utopia is the opposite of what happened. And then it just got worse and worse and worse, and we're at the end of 2021, and it's like, this is, we joke about it, but this is the bad place. This is a real dystopia. It's not the Hunger Games, but we are doing the exact opposite of what the path towards utopia really is, and that's exactly what this planet does. And that's why, again, they're going to die unless Kirk can talk some sense into them. Right, and it's not just Kirk that has problems talking to them, right? Because we we know that this isn't the real Enterprise that he's on because we actually do see what's happening on the real Enterprise at the same time. We cut back and forth between Kirk and Spock and the rest of the gang. And Spock has a terrible time with these Gideonites who basically are just like, oh, no, he didn't arrive, right? Because they're straight up lying to Spock about what they're doing with Kirk. For a show that really wants to say we can figure things out peacefully, there's sort of this weird anti-diplomatic bias in this episode because a Spock, it, it's like someone as logical as Spock cannot get his head around the idea that bureaucracy is a thing and that it, even like Starfleet has terrible bureaucracy, right? Because they're like, contact this department. And then when he does, they're like, contact this department because none of them want to take responsibility for taking a hard line against the Gideonites. When we talk about rhetoric, we talk about your credibility and your emotional plea and, you know, the, the ideas and the right here, right now-ness of it. Yeah. And so straight up lying, when somebody knows you are straight up lying, will kill your credibility and thus your argument is nothing. In the world that we live in, 
much that I think we shouldn't. I, I, as I've told Tessa several times, the solution for some of these people uh, who have power, who are obviously telling lies, just pick them up and put them in the trash. Don't hurt them. Just as a very symbolic metaphorical gesture, just put them in the trash to let them know that's what you're worth when you say these things. That's what Spock's doing. Spock is doing Spock's version of picking people up and putting them in the trash. He cannot keep cool because this is wrong. It's not about rhetoric. It's not about proving your point. It's not about let the best idea win. It's just foolish. And he cannot abide by that. He can better handle somebody like Bones, who is over-emotional, because he knows that Bones Bones has proven his credibility over time, so he can get away with that emotion. When some dude off the street tries to do it, he's just going to go, no, you're an idiot, stop, which is what he does. Right, and it's really funny to watch both Bones and Scotty get more and more upset about what's happening, while Spock is clearly still trying to like maintain this like logical, calm facade, but you can just see, like, his brain breaking during certain parts of this conversation where he's like, no, like that that's not logical. That's not what's going to happen. That's not what has happened, right? You can just see that he can't handle the sort of bureau the sort of dancing around that bureaucracy does. I there have been really multiple episodes in this season where the conclusion has basically been Jerry Seinfeld gets up from theater and goes, eh, dot gif. You know, that's <laughs> That's really, again, for a show that's very utopian, well, you can't win them all, guys. Well, I mean, the end of this episode is Spock finally figures out what's happened to Kirk and disobeys Starfleet because Starfleet does not want to start an international, interspatial, intergalactic, intergalactic. They don't want to start an incident with the Gideonites, so they're basically just like, we'll leave him. We can't call them out on it. It's not going to work, so I guess we're just going to have to leave him. And of course, Spock's not going to do that because he loves Kirk. So disobeys Starfleet and beams down to this replica of Enterprise and finds Kirk and rescues him and Odonna because Odonna is then cured by McCoy. And even though nothing, there's no consequences to this because this isn't a serialized television thing, Spock does imply that there will be consequences. Like this idea of he is risked his career over this. If this is a utopian society, they'll say fair play at the end of the day and everything will be fine. So basically what you're saying is he was right so he didn't get into trouble? In a world that cares about the best idea for the progress of society, yes. Does this show that Spock does in fact have some emotion? Because the logical thing would have been to leave him on the planet if you really just cared about logic and rules and... The, the greater purpose or whatever, do you think he would have left him or does this prove that he actually cares about Kirk more than he cares about logic? Okay, so this is a math problem. You think about the average person, not unrestrained id, sorry, not captain unrestrained id, right? <laughs> like your average person. What percentage, just a normal average person, emotion, and reason. What would you say the percentage breakdown is? I mean, I think that's hard to say because people are all different. And I believe in people as individuals. But I mean, I guess your basic model would probably be 70, 30. All right. So if you're saying 70, 30 emotion, logic, or reason, Vulcans are 100% reason. That's the whole point, right? 
So let's see. You really made it difficult on me. Let's see. So that'd be, yeah, okay. So what we're looking at here is Spock then, by your formula, is 35% emotion and 65% reason. I mean, yeah, that is the minority, you know, minority rule, right? That's the idea, is that his logic is going to win most battles, but that, you know, that minority rule, that's the whole idea of minority rule in democracy, is eventually you just stick your, you know, you throw a tantrum. And and the whole point of checks and balances is you protect the minority. Sorry, I just made another government metaphor, I know, but Spock is governed by re- reason and logic, but that doesn't mean minority rule won't take over as appropriate when it is most important to the minority, which is in this case, emotion. So that's what happens. It's, it's completely logical, Tessa. Would he have done this for anybody but Kirk? No. Fair point. Let's move on to That Which Survives, which is the 17th episode of the third season of TOS, written by John Meredith Lucas, based on a short story by D.C. Fontana under the pseudonym Michael Richards. As you know, D.C. Fontana has written a lot of Star Trek, and she often had to publish under a pseudonym because women as sci-fi writers were not fairly well recognized. But this episode was directed by Herb Wallerstein, another Star Trek alum. It was first broadcast on January 24th, 1969. I'm going to use the word mysterious a lot in this episode. The Enterprise encounters a mysterious, apparently artificial planet, and Kirk, McCoy, Sulu, and some geologist, which isn't in a red shirt but might as well be in a red shirt, beam down to investigate. As they are being transported, a woman appears in the transporter room and kills the technician and then flings the Enterprise almost a thousand light years away. The rest of the episode is a race against time as the woman plays cat and mouse with the Enterprise crew as they try to get back to Kirk, while Kirk and the others try to survive her machinations against them on the planet. So, let's start with the Batman actor, another Batman actor in the room, Lee Merriweather, who plays Losira, who is the main villain in this story. What do we think about Lee Merriweather and Batman 66 actors, since I think we've gotten almost the complete set? You know, Lee Merriweather shows up as Catwoman once in the the movie that takes place between seasons one and two. I think you know that I don't like this episode, so it's a real shame. That's, that's my answer to that question. The reason I don't like the episode, I think I've finally figured it out in talking about the previous episode. As you know, and we've known somebody who did this, and of course, we could do it much better. Star Trek is is actually a, a good pedagogical model for a lot of things. Because they're, they're trying to get at some big issues of the day, some really philosophical questions. But they're doing so in a very ham-handed 60s sci-fi way. What makes that a great tool for teaching is you can see a complicated idea play out in a very understandable way. I don't think this episode does that. I don't think what's going on with Lee Merriweather's character is that. Uh, I know the value of this episode is not what's happening on that planet, but what's happening on the starship. And it's entertaining so far as it goes, but I don't know that it has any value like the previous episode and like most of the episodes we've watched have. And that's completely fair. I wasn't expecting you to like all of these episodes. I had a very specific reason for picking this episode, which we'll talk about in a minute. 
Let's talk about first the weaker part of the episode and work our way back towards that. One of the things that people generally like about this episode is the structure of separating the landing party from the Enterprise in such a drastic way. So you have Kirk, McCoy, Sulu, and I don't, I don't even know his name. Like, he dies so fast. They, they're stuck on this artificial planet. And they're basically trying to survive, like they're trying to find food and water for like the first half of the episode. Then the second half of the episode, they're trying to survive Losira coming to kill them. And so there's that sort of like Robinson Crusoe aspect to it in that sense. Did you find anything about that interesting? Maybe I would have if we hadn't already done an artificial planet. I mean, I guess that was an asteroid, not a planet, but... This just feels really recycled. And and I have to say, I don't care about the landing party, bridge, dining. I don't care. It, it's not fun. It's not a trope that matters at all to me. I know there's some investment in it. And I'm not trying to take that away from anything or anybody. But like I said, it's it's the idea work. And it's just not there. They're They're trying to... It's not paint by numbers. I, I, I wouldn't say that any episode that we've seen or probably that we haven't seen is paint by numbers, but they are relying on, because this is the measure of a good television show, you create dynamics, you create situations that give you credibility, and then you rely on them to make the show work in its later seasons. You should be able to really do that by the end of a third season. It, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. They have created them, but you still have to execute. It's like running a play in basketball. You create a good play, you have a good playbook, and you can run them because you practice them and you know them well. They don't just work automatically, though. They don't work in every situation. This is an example of that, where what you have doesn't work because you're telling the wrong story in this case. The funny part to me about this episode is that Losira does this thing where when she before she's about to kill someone, she knows their names and it's not completely clear how she knows who they are. But then she'll say, I'm here for you, Sulu. And then like try to touch that person, right? Because her touch kills. What did you think about their strategy of as soon as they figured out which one of them she was there for, they, the other two would like bodily block her. Like they kept switching places so she couldn't like touch them. This is supposed to be like an inversion of the the whole female sexuality, like weird science. We're going to make a girl who's perfect for us. Oh, God, not like that. The whole male fantasy is I am for you. Well, you're a hot girl. So that that checks out. That's great. So this is like, no, no, I don't want that. You'll kill me. Which I mean, like. You know, that kind of runs straight, straight against the Black Widow thing, like, okay. All right, we all got to go sometime. So they're tr- again, so they're trying to rely on these tropes and it's bad. It doesn't work. <laughs> but but she's here for this guy and if she touches another guy it won't work. You have a very small margin of error. You really want to bet that that's going to work? Like, oh look, she barely brushed him. He has necrotic tissue, but he'll be fine. First of all, no he won't. Second of all, you want it on a guess? Like, you got lucky and then later found this out. You really want to just test your, okay, I mean, I would just, you know, run away. I love how also, going back to your weird science thing, the fact that she's beautiful confuses the heck out of them. Like, they're like, how could she be deadly? She's so beautiful. Like, 
what? Like, there's like a very weird disconnect in conversation that they're trying to have about beauty in this. And it, it is very strange. The reason I picked this episode is that it has some really great character work between Spock and Scotty as they're trying to get the Enterprise back to Captain Kirk. But also, about halfway through, they realize that matter antimatter machine MacGuffin thing on the ship is poised to explode the ship in about 10 minutes so they have to work together to try to undo that so that way they don't die and they can get back to Kirk. The reason I picked this episode is there's some really great scenes here between Scotty and Spock. We don't get to see a lot of Scotty and Spock together in this way in this show. Like this is one of the very few episodes where they get to interact with each other in every single scene and the scene isn't immediately dominated by Kirk or by McCoy or somebody else. What did you think about this development of their relationship? It was fun. <laughs> we This dynamic is fun, and I, I think I know why. So we just talked about how Spock is reason over emotion. Well, I think what this episode is trying to tell us is there is no reasoning with a Scott. No, 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 no. You cannot. Right? This is like, this is like William Wallace in space. Like, no, you will not tell me what to do. No. And Spock's like, get, oh, get, this is the, you're, why are you the worst? Okay, listen, just do your thing. And I'm not going to tell you what my plan is because if I tell you, you're going to be like, no, because that's all you do. So I, I don't know what kind of weird, international thing we're I don't know if we're flexing on the entirety of Scotland in this episode but I mean this is the way it's playing out right it's like nah there's no I'm not gonna tell you my plan because you'll just say no because it's my plan so and I mean he's not wrong I mean that's the thing like Bach's not wrong this was the best this was the correct way to do it because the angrier Scotty got Bach knows that to motivate the the Scott is to anger him and then just let him go. Just let him loose. I, it's not me. It's the show, okay? Well, and I love because there's this dynamic where Scotty keeps saying something in a very emotional way or a quasi-emotional way. And then Spock will get all pedantic on him. Like, it wasn't a thousand light years. It was 997 light years. Like, it's it's very like it seems aggressive or it seems pedantic, but there's this seat, this moment that I absolutely love because at one point Scotty they they're on their way back and they haven't figured out that there's something wrong yet and Scotty says, I don't know something just feels wrong like I it's not on any of the sensors it's not on any of the boards I I just know this ship very well and I something feels off and Spock says like that's a feeling but. Later, when Spock figures it out, he says, you were right when you said that something was wrong. And Scotty says, well, I thought that you didn't understand it. And Spock actually tells him, didn't have to understand it to note it. And that, to me, is one of the most mature things that Spock can do. This idea that he understands that even though he doesn't necessarily value things like intuition or feeling, he can understand that other people do. And then that's their way of communicating real ideas. What did you think about that sort of interaction, despite the fact that he was clearly still pissing Scotty off? I thought you weren't going to ask a question. You were just going to say the statement and pass it over and be like, <laughs> deal with that. Again, this is character work paying off. You, we know that Scotty's my favorite. Intuition is what he values. 
if you've ever known a mechanic who was really good, intuition is something that matters in engineering work. You can test everything you can possibly test. You can look for a solution logically and deliberately, and 99 out of 100 times, you will eventually find it. Intuition in engineering is getting the 99 out of 100 times, getting to it more quickly than not, because you're able to intuit what's likely wrong first. The worst case scenario is you're wrong and it takes you, you know, about the same amount of time it would have if you didn't have that. The one out of 100 times is where the intuition will solve the problem when nothing else will. Because there are cases, and this is the case with the enterprise, but it's the same thing that happens with cars, uh, computers, or anything else. There are those times where there is nothing logical that's wrong. And the only way you'll be able to fix it is if you know the system and can intuit what's wrong with it, because there's nothing obviously wrong. I know that because I've been around engineers for my entire life. So is Spock, which is why he knows it. The reason he's so snippy in this episode is not that he doesn't know that or isn't observing it because he did and he does, or he does and he did, either way. It's that he doesn't dig that. He doesn't like it. He has lost his best friend. When you are in a moment of crisis, of turmoil, and this is especially true with somebody who hates emotion, right? Either ruled by emotion or hates emotion. It really kind of works out the same in this case. You fall back on what you have. And so he falls back on logic, which is why, okay, dude, come on. We know close enough, 1,999, whatever, shut up. He's upset. And his way of being upset is to correct people on their math. I know because I've done it. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. Am I outing myself as a Spock? I don't know. That hurts. I don't like that. But then again, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a bad engineer, so I guess I can't be Scotty. I guess. I guess. I don't know. It's hurtful. First of all, I was going to ask you, what do you think about the tension in the scene where he believes in Scott as Scott is trying to fix the... He's in the dangerous tunnel and he's trying to fix the thing and they've only got a minute left before they can eject the pod and he's not willing to eject it while Scotty's still in there. But then Scotty's tool gets stuck. First of all, I've been noticing that these episodes are getting longer and longer. And I really feel like somewhere along the way we stopped talking about Star Trek as a show. Are you psychoanalyzing me through this show? No. <laughs> Is that what's happening? Are you a spy? That's a, that's a Paul Thomas Anderson Easter egg. Listen to the regular episodes of Monkey. I mean, I can tell you what I think is happening, which is the thing where... When you commit to a decision, at some point, you just have to stick by it. If you jettison Scotty into space at this point, he's going to die. Period. And I already decided I wasn't going to do that. Now, the consequence is we all die, but I don't know. We're all got to die sometime. At some point, you have to stand by your decision and rely on the fact that you made a decision for a good reason. Which, by the way, for people who don't make good decisions, I don't know how you get there. Maybe that's why you are always changing your mind. I don't know. But in this case, he decided that he was going to trust Scotty. Scotty was the only person keeping the ship together. And by the way, if you think about it, if you jettison Scotty into space, next week you're all dead anyway. 
So might as well. I mean, Kirk's going to get you into some situation that only Scotty can get us out of. And if he's gone, we're all dead. So what's the risk, really? It's minimal because you'll die eventually. And it's minimal because you decided that he could pull through and get it done. I will say I have never laughed as hard as I did when everything was done and Scotty just like, you know, like sags down to the bottom of the tunnel in relief and he tells Spock a thank you would suffice. And you can just hear Spock in the background giving him a lecture on why do humans always expect some sort of show of emotion for just doing their job? Like, it's just it's it's a great gag. I like it when people yell over microphones while other people just laugh in the foreground. I felt seen. All right, I promise I only have two more questions for you about this episode. Better not charge me at the end of this. No. The first question has to do with a trend that I've noticed over the last few episodes, and so I felt like this was a really good time to ask it. So both in this episode, in the last episode, The Mark of Gideon, and in a earlier episode this season, The Tholian Web, we really get to see Spock flex as a commander of the Enterprise because he's the one in charge for a lot of these episodes. How do we feel about Spock as a commander? What have we learned about his ability to command a starship over the course of these episodes? You said he's not commander material. And I agree. Here's why. And this is also unfortunately why I am apparently Spock. Spock is a very good second in command. He does not have the mindset of a leader. He does not have the personality of a leader. He does not have the skill set of a leader. What he does have is the ability to make a good leader great. That's what he does. He believes in Kirk. So he is going to stand behind Kirk and do whatever needs to be done to make sure that Kirk succeeds. He does not want to be in power. He does not want his own command. He actively does not want that. And when he takes over the bridge, he does so reluctantly. But he does it because he was asked to do so by somebody he trusts. So what I said when I said that I didn't think he was a good first in command, a good captain, is that he's a bit too rigid. And when you're a leader, you need to be flexible in your approach to people, in your approach to situations. And I think that's maybe not as noticeable in this episode as it is in the Tholian web. So I, I think in this moment, Spock is a lot like Drax. You cannot do metaphors with him. So earlier when I said the reason I would make a bad leader is when somebody is obviously stupid, I will metaphorically trash their idea by picking them up and putting them in a trash can. Spock would not do that because that's not metaphorical and it's too emotional. But basically, that's what he would be thinking too. The reason he's inflexible is he has no problem saying, that's stupid. You're wrong. Go away. You can't negotiate with people that way. I find this very difficult. I, I find this to be very unfortunate. I don't like it. But it turns out being right isn't the position of power that you think it should be. Or at least I think it should be. You know, we say that might makes right. That's not right. But right might should make might. Maybe, but that's not how the world works. And so that's why somebody like Spock can't be in charge. You have to have somebody like Kirk who can work people's emotions, kind of get them over to his side. He's a negotiator because he has that, that emotional intelligence that Spock lacks. Scotty doesn't have emotional intelligence. He's just emotional. 
All right, my last question has to do with a new, a briefly shown new guest appearance character, Lieutenant Rada, who takes over for Sulu at the Navigator Station. I have such mixed feelings about this character, but first I'd like to ask you what you think about Lieutenant Rada. All right, sure. She's the one who kept saying the light years thing and keeps getting corrected. Eh, I don't care. I mean, we're almost done with the series. Why should I care? Well, the reason I bring it up is because I think it's really interesting that they chose to have a woman doing more of an active role on the Enterprise Bridge besides Uhura. As we know, Uhura is a great character, and I would definitely never downplay her importance to this role, but we can all agree that she's given what's considered the most feminine job on the bridge, right? She's basically a glorified telephone operator in a lot of ways. To see a female character actually playing a more scientific role, a more active role of steering the ship and doing all those calculations, even though she keeps getting corrected by Spock, I think that that's a really interesting move. The other interesting part is that they decided to make Lieutenant Rada Hindu, right? She has, she's supposed to be of, of Indian origin, and she has a bindi on her forehead. Now, the problem is, is that, of course, she's played by Naomi Pollock, who is Jewish, not Indian. So we have a little bit of brown face happening here. It's not quite as egregious as in Day of the Dove, but we do have a little bit of that there. That's why I have mixed feelings about her. So basically, without the brown face, this is Gwen Stefani around Tragic Kingdom, right? Oh, look, girl power. You're right. You are just a girl. Feminism. Maybe you shouldn't appropriate by wearing a bindi. It's pretty much that, right? Pretty much. I can congratulate them on their commitment to globalism in their view of utopia. I just wish that actually extended to casting actual actors that were globally yeah Yeah, like casting actually indian actors in these roles our time's up i'm not paying you (laughs) join us next time for the final for now sam watches star trek where we'll be discussing season three's requiem for methuselah and all of our yesterdays you can find sam on twitter at sam underscore morris nine and you can find me at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Obviously, you can find Monkey Off My Backlog, our main podcast, at Monkey Backlog. And you can find my podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, at Nanny's Book Club. Until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs>